Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. And today I am joined by Greg Knuckles. As you know, he is currently the permanent guest co-host of the show. Greg, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, We have a fantastic episode today. Really nice outline, a very full outline. So we'll see what we can get to. But before we get there, uh, a few announcements. Uh, As always, if you like the show and you want to support it, there are many ways to do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You could use our discount code, SBSPOD, at BulkSupplements.com. That will get you a 5% discount uh, off your entire order. And that 5% discount uh, conservatively could end up being about a hundred grand a year us dollars you put that into a number of skyrocketing alternative currencies and crypto coins all of a sudden you quit your job it's just a completely different life um so that that seems nice uh you could subscribe to macro factor that is our diet app that we put together it does have a free trial so you can take it for a spin see if you like it Uh, We believe and hope that you will like it if you give it a try. And also, Greg and I are co-authors of the Mass Research Review. Uh, And this is a special time of the year for Mass because our big anniversary sale is coming up. Uh, And this sale actually marks the five-year anniversary of Mass. Uh, So we're, we're about halfway through Volume 6, been in operation for about five years now. And so in order to commemorate that anniversary, we've got a big sale. We've also got a best of issue uh, that just went up on the website uh, a couple days ago. So if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash mass best of, there's a hyperlink in the show notes. Uh, You can find our hand-selected collection of articles from the past year that we think are the best stuff we've put into mass. Um, It's always challenging trying to pick like, you know, we each get a a couple articles we get to select. Uh, It's always hard to try to pick out which ones make the cut for the best of issue. So check out the best of mass. uh, And if you like it, definitely consider uh, subscribing during the big sale. They are going to be our best prices of the year. Uh, The sale is going to be from Tuesday, April 26th through Tuesday, May 3rd. So it's one week. Um, and, and the pricing, like I said, the best prices of the year, it's going to be 21 per month for new subscribers, 209 per year, or 699 for the lifetime subscription. Those are all in US dollars. And if you're an, ex- an existing subscriber and you want to get in on some of the sale prices, you can upgrade to a lifetime sub- subscription uh, during the sale for only 599 US dollars. Uh, all right, road to the stage. How's it going? Road to the stage is going good. Uh, as of today, called my shot last episode, said I was going to be in the 220s by uh, by the time the next episode came out. It is now Monday, and I am uh, 229.4, which is, which is good. I like to see that. Uh, it's been approximately 10 years since I've been in the 220s. Uh, did my last powerlifting meet at 2:20 in like June? No, I think in August, July or August of 2012. 
And by uh, like April, May of 2013, I was in the 242. So I'm pretty sure I, I got into the 230s uh, in the fall of 2012 sometime. Haven't seen the 220s since. So it's it's good to be back and uh, have some, some cool milestones coming up. So uh, when I hit 228, that will be uh, 50 pounds down from, from my zenith. Uh, started this whole process at 278, so that'll be cool. Uh, and I'm trying to get down below 200. So uh, 226 will be the two-thirds way point uh, between where I started and where I'm trying to go. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, the milestone. Well, I'm happy about the milestone I just reached. Looking forward to some of the milestones coming up. Uh, and, and right now, uh, the the diet fatigue is uh, is really starting to set in, and uh, metabolic adaptation is kind of doing its thing. Like current calorie levels pretty low. Don't really want to keep rolling with them for the next several months without a break. So what I'm planning on, I think, for now is to get down to about 225 and then uh, press pause on Road to the Stage for, I don't know, a month or two, uh, just until my energy expenditure starts creeping up again, start feeling better. Um, but yeah, I mean, stoked to hit this milestone. Uh, and I, I I came to this decision last night about the uh, the potential break at 225. And the more I think about it, the more I like it because I I could definitely use a break. Uh, but yeah, things are things are going good. That's awesome, man! Congratulations on your progress. Uh, I'm excited to see just from like looking at your data how that diet break is going to treat you. You know, because you you've talked about in the past how uh, it's been informative to kind of watch your total daily energy expenditure estimate and macro factor kind of trend down a little bit as metabolic adaptation starts to really sink in. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that reacts after kind of a prolonged diet break. So, yeah. uh, that, that'll be something for us to look forward to. How is the, uh, how is the road to the state or uh, road to Athens? Um, I'm glad you asked because I don't, you know, sometimes when things are going too well, it seems like we're just up here bragging and gloating about it. So while you succeed, uh, and are just killing the road to the stage. I want to level that out. I want to balance that out by just you are being killed by the road to Athens. I I am. Um, and for a little context, like you know, I did run into a little uh, kind of overuse thing early on, where you know my popliteus muscle was unhappy. But that was just you know too much trail running too quickly, and it wasn't a huge obstacle. You know that cleared up. It was back on you know back on the road to Athens, no big deal. What I've run into this time, I've kind of alluded to it in previous episodes. Uh, it's kind of a bigger roadblock. So I was having uh, some issues with my hip that have been going on for like probably five years at this point. Um, and as a stubborn person, I have not sought any help or treatment with that, which is not uh, a good way to approach things. But, um, but yeah, so one of the reasons that I was kind of interested in getting more into running was because I was just sick of, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing with lifting and just keep running into this hip issue. So I was like, oh, running should be a, a little bit more manageable. Uh, and this damn hip is interfering with my running as well. So 
I'm finally seeking uh, physical therapy. I actually made an appointment. This is going to be my first time ever working with a physical therapist, believe it or not. Nice. Uh, have you ever worked with a physical therapist? I have. Yeah. I, I've never had the uh, the pleasure, uh, but I am looking forward to it because if nothing else, I just want to figure out what the hell is wrong with my hip. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's been five years of disrupting lifting, sleeping, now running, and I'm like, it it's time to do something yeah you know so so i'm excited to see how that will go in the meantime as i've mentioned previously it's warming up so i'm going to be able to do more swimming and more paddle boarding Mm -hmm. Um, but i am a little bit concerned that at the age of 31 i am now kind of uh (laughs) my list of doable exercises is getting to that point that i didn't think it would get here until i was in my like 70s or 80s yeah where it's like "Ah, i can bob around to the water a little like you know, do some water aerobics, maybe. Uh, I thought I would have more on the table at 31. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that with physical therapy, we can open that up a little bit, open up the uh, the metaphorical playbook when it comes to exercise. So we'll see how that goes. Well, sounds good, man. I, I wish you nothing but the best with, uh, with that endeavor. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll update everybody and uh, hopefully have a great uh, physical therapy experience. And, and that'll encourage people to not wait five years like I did, maybe. <laughs> uh, before we move on, I did want to mention, I, I forgot to mention this in the introduction. We have a new article up on the website, strongerbyscience.com. The title of the article is Building Muscle in a Caloric Deficit. Context is Key. So this is a republished article from Mass that kind of coincides with the best of Mass issue and coincides with the sale, just to kind of give you a a little glimpse into what a Mass article looks like. This is an article that I wrote, um, and one of the reasons we picked this one to put out uh, for free at strongerbyscience.com is because it is a question that comes up so much. Uh, It's so common to see online discussions about, uh, you know, is it even possible to build muscle in a caloric de- deficit? If so, what's the best way to approach it? Who can really do this feasibly? Uh, so this article talks about who actually can really achieve this goal of building appreciable muscle mass while losing fat uh, and, and in what scenarios it's most likely and how to actually go about doing it. So if those topics interest you, be sure to check out that article on the site. Was that the article about the... Uh the Murphy meta? Um, I'm going to click on it. Okay. Refresh my memory here. Yes, it, it was about the uh, the meta-analysis and nice. meta-regression by Murphy and colleagues published in 2021. Yeah, I, I, I remember that article. It was, it was a good article. Thank you. All right. Research review time? Yeah, I mean, normally the temporary primary host would kind of facilitate that and move the show along, but... You know, I'll I'll review the documents and see if I signed away that privilege. Uh, Yeah. uh, So research review. What do you got? Yeah. So uh, I'm doing I'm doing a little research review uh, related to not dying. So there's a pretty common question that comes up in the Stronger by Science subreddit, Facebook group, uh, something I get asked on Instagram a lot. Just, you know everywhere this this is something that the people want to know so people will ask something along the lines of like hey you know i i've done the powerlifting thing i've done the bodybuilding thing maybe i lifted for a sport that i played previously and you know now i'm just playing the longevity game i i enjoy resistance training i want to keep doing it 
but I'm not necessarily attempting to maximize my strength gains. I'm not necessarily attempting to maximize hypertrophy. I just want to know how I need to train and how much training I need to do to uh, accrue the health benefits from resistance training. You know, under the assumption that the amount of training you need to do to be an elite strength athlete is probably a bit more than the amount of training you would need to do just to to maximize the health benefits you could accrue from resistance training. So, you know, that that's something that is on a lot of people's minds. And previously, when I answered that question, uh, <laughs> I would basically just say like, you know, here are the ACSM's guidelines. Uh, you know, they say do, I think like two to three sessions of resistance training per week with like one to three sets of however many reps, I don't remember, for, for all major muscle groups, and boom, that should get the job done. And it doesn't look like all that much resistance training, uh, and there wasn't really great like dose-response research on this question. Uh, well, there was. I just hadn't looked that hard for it. Um, but, you know, my my basic question... You got to use the, the, the little caveat that gets you out of trouble, which is, to my knowledge, yeah, yeah, there yeah. wasn't a lot of research. Yeah, I mean, so... Um, yeah, that is true. <laughs> I am not aware of research. That's what I always say. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just a question I hadn't looked into that much because it didn't interest me personally quite as much. Yeah. Um, and also, it, it wasn't as directly relevant to the people that, that I train and have trained. Like, most most of those folks are more interested in, like, hey, I just want to get as strong as possible. Um but a recent uh, systematic review and meta-analysis came out that is very relevant to this question. Uh, and it's actually covered in a research brief in the upcoming uh, May issue of Mass. So, so you guys are getting a bit of a sneak peek. But for the complete breakdown, uh, check out the forthcoming issue. But uh, it is a, uh, a meta-analysis by Mama and colleagues. That is the author's surname. Uh, title is Muscle Strengthening Activities Are Associated with Lower Risk and Mortality in Major Non-Communicable Diseases, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Cohort Studies. So this was a meta-analysis, so it started with a systematic literature search, as all metas do, uh, and so they were looking for studies that met these four inclusion criteria. First, the study needed to employ a prospective observational design. So to be clear, this isn't it didn't include studies that can be used to establish causation. They didn't use randomized control trials. Uh, prospective observational studies are basically just, you know, you recruit a large cohort of people, generally several thousand people, and uh, just, you know, ask them questions like, hey, do you do resistance training? Do you eat veggies? Do you smoke? Whatever. Like, you, you gather information about them and do so periodically over a matter of years and just observe what happens to them. So, you know, do people who uh, engage in resistance training, uh, do they die uh, less frequently uh, than people who don't do resistance training? Do they develop cardiovascular disease at lower rates, etc.? cetera? Um, so again, observational studies, not RCTs. Uh, the studies needed to have a minimum of a two-year follow-up period. So basically, you know, if you just observed a cohort for three months, it wouldn't meet these inclusion criteria. It needed to be a long enough period of time for health-related events to actually happen. Uh, and the study needed to uh, to be included in the meta studies needed to examine the relationship 
between resistance training and the outcomes of interest, which were uh, mortality and non-communicable disease incident rates and mortality rates. Um, and the, the studies either just needed to look at resistance training or a combination of both resistance and aerobic training. And the fourth criteria was just that the study needed to be published in English, which is pretty standard. Uh, so they found all of the studies that met those inclusion criteria. There were seven of them, I believe. Uh, and they, they analyzed the data three different ways. First, they just started with kind of binary meta-analyses. So, um, you know, do people who engage in resistance training uh, have lower rates of all-cause mortality than people who don't? So just... Do you resistance train? Yes, no, binary variable, boom, that's it. Um, then the second set of analyses they did were dose-response analyses. So in studies that reported not just did people do resistance training, but also how much resistance training did they do, they looked to see the relationship between how much resistance training someone did and the outcome variables of interest. Uh, and then the third set of meta-analyses they did were uh, basically looking at uh, the outcomes of interest, so all-cause mortality and non-communicable disease risk, uh, and, and their relationship with resistance training in isolation, aerobic training in isolation, and a combination of both resistance and aerobic training to see if one versus the other form of exercise was driving the associations observed, uh, or if the combination of both might be more beneficial than either in isolation. So uh, that is how they analyzed the data. So just starting with the the uh, simplest meta-analyses they, they did, just the binary analyses, they found that uh, people who engaged in resistance training had lower, uh, significantly, so statistically significantly lower uh, rates of all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease incidence, total cancer incidence, and uh, diabetes incidents than people who did not engage in resistance training. And for all of those outcomes, the, the risk, the, the, um, the relative risk was like 12 to 17% lower. So like a 15% reduction for all-cause mortality, 17% for cardiovascular disease, 12% for total cancer, and 17% for diabetes. So, you know, uh, Depending how you look at it, uh, the, the way I interpret that is relatively small reductions in risk. So we're not talking about 90% reductions in risk or anything like that, but relatively small but notable and consistent reductions in risk. So not only do the pooled effect estimates suggest a reduction in risk of all of these things, but the figure in the paper indicates that for all of the individual studies that were included in this meta-analysis, the point estimate for all of them suggested a reduction in risk. So this was a, uh, a pretty reliable observed effect in all of the studies that met these inclusion criteria, uh, which is good to see. Then I'm going to skip the, the dose-response meta, because that is where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, and skip on over to the, uh, the analyses looking at resistance training alone, aerobic training alone, and a combination. So there were enough studies looking at all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality, total cancer mortality, and colon cancer incidence to be worth analyzing. And I'll note, 
uh, I wouldn't put all of my eggs in, in the basket of just taking these results at face value because uh, a lot of the studies that were included in this meta were not looking at these specific outcomes, separating out both resistance and aerobic training. So the, the previous analyses I mentioned had like seven studies going into them. All of these just had three or four studies in each, or uh, two or three studies in each analysis. So uh, quite a bit lower power, much wider confidence intervals. So, you know, th these are these are kind of more more up in the air. But the overall trend is that the reduction in all of those outcomes I mentioned, all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality, cancer mortality, and colon cancer incidence, the point estimate for the relative risk reduction with both aerobic and strength training combined uh, was larger than the relative risk reduction with either aerobic training alone or resistance training alone. So for a lot of those outcomes, the difference between those three categories wasn't statistically significant because like I mentioned, not as many studies uh, separated out aerobic and resistance training to be able to uh, analyze things on this granular of a level but at least the point estimates uh, suggest that maybe a combination of aerobic and resistance training, a little bit better than either form in isolation, which is good to see. And then finally, the, the dose response stuff, which I think is, is the most relevant to the people who ask this question and are interested in this. Like, you know, hey, if I just want to be healthy, how much resistance training should I be doing? And I also think that this is uh, maybe the the most potentially controversial set of analyses. Um, so I'm going to tell you what they found, and then we're going to talk about it uh, a little bit more. So there were enough studies to get rough dose-response relationships between training duration and uh, all-cause mortality rates, uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease, uh, incidence of total cancer, and incidence of... Uh, uh, developing type 2 diabetes. And what they found is that for all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and total cancer, there was a roughly J-shaped association such that doing some amount of resistance training was associated with lower risk uh, for those outcomes, but past a certain point, continuing to do more resistance training was associated with elevated risk in those outcomes. And for all of them, the dose-response relationship is roughly similar. So uh, it seems like doing roughly 30 to 60 minutes of resistance training per week, which I'll note, not all that much resistance training. Uh, that is roughly the amount of resistance training that was associated with the largest reductions in risk in all of those outcomes and passed about 130, 140 minutes per week, so like two, two and a half hours past that point, uh, further increases or, or uh, further amounts of resistance training per week was actually associated with elevated all-cause mortality rates, uh, cardiovascular disease risk, total cancer risk. And then, like I mentioned, the last outcome they looked at was diabetes. And they found for that basically that you you kind of reach a point of diminishing returns after about 60 minutes of resistance training per week. So relatively large reductions in diabetes risk uh, up to about 60 minutes per week and then further reductions past that point. But the rate at which risk was reduced uh, 
decreased as the amount of training time increased. So basically, you know, if you do an hour of resistance training per week versus none, that's associated with a relatively large reduction in risk. If you do four hours instead of one hour, that is associated with an even greater reduction in risk, but uh, not not as as large as the slope was from zero minutes to an hour, if that makes sense. So that that's basically what they found. And so the obviously the most glass, glass half full interpretation of this is like, you know what, for for higher resistance training doses, we're just going to assume on faith that those are spurious correlations and that everything's good, uh, but we're going to take the good part of these findings and say 30 to 60 minutes of resistance training per week, that is the largest, or like that is clear, that clearly seems to be associated with uh, reductions in all-cause mortality rates, cardiovascular disease, cancer. So we're going to take that and say, yeah, 30 to 60 minutes, that's all you really need, but also say, and you know what, you can actually do as much as you want, and that's totally fine. Those potential elevations with that J-shaped curve, that's totally spurious, don't even worry about it. Um, that would be, <laughs> that's what I want to believe, that's kind of like the the motivated reasoning interpretation. Um, and, and that would be great news, because like back in the day, I did an internship uh, at, like I did some hours at uh, an assisted living facility. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, like, uh, the, um, individuals who lived in the facility, I was at the gym, you know, it was an exercise yeah. science degree. So I'd be in there and, you know, they'd come in and, you know, maybe one or two times a week when they were watching the news, they'd come do some, some resistance training. And at the time I remember thinking like that, that's such a minimal amount of resistance training. Like mm-hmm. it was almost like my, my intuition led me to wonder like, what's really the point of getting in there and doing, you know, 30, 60 minutes a week. Yeah. So for people like that, you know, th- that particular finding is, is really positive, really, mm-hmm. really encouraging. Yeah. So I, I, I actually think I am willing to accept that part of the glass half full interpretation um, for, for a couple reasons. One is just that like I looked into uh, several of the individual studies that went into this meta-analysis, and they all observed basically the same thing, that, you know, people who did, you know, get to the gym, do some resistance training just once or twice per week, less than an hour of resistance training, and in the studies that fed into this meta-analysis, that was consistently associated with reductions in risk. Like, the, it, it wasn't just like a J-shaped curve that's just kind of a statistical artifact that came about when you feed all of these studies into a meta regression model. So that, that was a very consistent observation and, um, you know, doing a little bit of resistance training over a longer period of time, that is something where there, there have been like longitudinal intervention studies on. So not just observational studies in community dwelling, older adults, um, and, and those studies don't tend to involve a super intensive resistance training intervention. Uh, but you know, they're, they're looking at, uh, mortality rates, but then also just like maintenance of activities of daily living. And, and there's a ton of studies on that. And most of them find like, yeah, you take community dwelling o- older adults, you have them lift a couple days a week. Nah, that tends to improve health outcomes pretty much across the board. Um, like they, that's, on pretty much everything you look at, it seems to have neutral to positive effects. So I, I do think that there's a causal relationship there. Like uh, older adults do a little resistance training 
outcomes across the board for pretty much everything will probably be better than had you not been doing any. And it, it doesn't seem to take all that much. Um, but then, you know, kind of the more controversial part is the right side of that curve. So uh, are there increased uh, risks of all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and cancer if you're doing more than two, two and a half hours of resistance training per week? And like I said, it it would be nice to just be able to dismiss that out of hand and say, yeah, this must be a spurious correlation. We know resistance training is good for you. There's no way that this uh, association could possibly be indicative of possibly like an underlying causal relationship. But I, I do think it's worth taking seriously, but I think it's also worth contextualizing. So in cohort studies that are looking at all-cause mortality, they're primarily using cohorts of older adults, uh, which makes sense. You know, if if you're interested in the association between some behavior or lifestyle factor and dying, and you want to be able to reliably detect that effect or association, you need a fair number of people to die in your study between enrollment and follow-up. And you don't get that if you're studying 20, 30-year-olds. So most of these studies use older adults. And so, uh, you know, here here is a potential explanatory chain. I'm not saying this is for sure what's happening, but I, I do think it's at least plausible. So, you know, it could be that for older adults, people in their 60s and 70s, um, you know, with with everyone doing resistance training, there is some level of training stress that you can uh, adapt to productively. You put stress on your body, your body adapts to it, you come back bigger, stronger than ever, things are good. And then there's a level of stress past which you can't productively adapt to anymore. Uh, and, you know, the, the nomenclature typically given to that is overtraining, but basically you're just putting more stress on your body than it can cope with. And instead of getting stronger and more robust, it starts breaking down, bad stuff happens. And so it's entirely possible that with older adults, the point past which training tips over from being productive to unproductive and potentially deleterious, it could be like a pretty reasonable amount of training. So not five, six hours a week, but maybe two, two and a half hours per week. Um, so, you know, older adults already have higher baseline levels of oxidative damage, inflammation. It could be that once they're doing more than two, two and a half hours of resistance training per week, again, on average, like it, I'm sure it varies person to person, but on average, two, two and a half hours of resistance training per week, that may be more than their body can can cope with and adapt to. And instead of having a overtime net reduction in inflammation and oxidative stress, maybe it's causing net increases, which might accelerate the overall aging process, leading to increases in all-cause mortality and, and non-communicable chronic disease risk. That is, I'm not saying that is for sure what's happening, but that is at least one plausible explanation for these findings that I think is worth considering and taking seriously. However, there are alternate explanations. So one uh, is just that um, resistance training causally, like with pretty much any dose up to some high threshold, uh, resistance training does causally reduce your risk of all of those things, but it could be that the individuals included in these cohort studies who were doing a lot of resistance training 
differed from the rest of the cohort in systematic ways. So for example, um, maybe you get some sort of serious diagnosis or just some blood work comes back that looks really, really bad. And the doctor says like, hey man, like you need to get in shape or bad stuff's gonna happen. And so, you know, you say, hey, my time is running out. I need to do what I can to prolong it. I'm just gonna start working out like a madman to try to prolong my time on this earth. And so you have maybe a group of people who were already in generally poor health doing a lot more resistance training on average than maybe people who were doing less resistance training but were overall in generally better health. And maybe the resistance training is reducing the risk in the people who were already at high risk, but they still die at higher rates just because they were previously in poor health. Like, again, I'm not saying that is for sure what's happening, but that is another potential explanation. Um, and there, there are quite a few plausible medical conditions where you could say, okay, that, that would really make sense. You yeah, know? yeah. So it's like, hey, we identified that, that your bone density is super low. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of young people fail to appreciate the severity of a major fracture oh, when, yeah, when you start sure. getting into your 70s and 80s. I mean, like the... Oh, yeah. Like if someone just starts doing three hours of resistance training per week because they're doing rehab after a hip fracture, like, yeah. dude, they're... I don't want to catastrophize it, but like that person's in bad shape to begin with. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the percentage of older individuals who die within one year of a serious hip fracture is so much higher than, than you would anticipate, yeah. you know, um, or, you know, any number of conditions that lead to frailty, muscle wasting, et cetera. Mm -hmm. for, for all of those, you would tell someone, hey, you need to get into the gym extra. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, so, uh, just to back up your point, there are many, many scenarios where you could say, okay, yeah, that 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 does seem like a plausible explanation. Yeah, yeah so I, I think the way I interpret this personally is that if someone asks, hey, you know, I, I want to do some resistance training for the primary goal of being healthy, I feel very comfortable telling them that 30 to 60 minutes per week, not all that much resistance training, uh, is probably going to do almost exclusively good things for you. Um, seems to be cell, uh, safe and well-tolerated in the vast majority of populations, uh, reliably associated with reduced risk of premature death and, and a bunch of non-communicable diseases. So yeah, if you want the better safe and sorry recommendation for like, hey, I, I want to do some resistance training for the purpose of health. Uh, do about an hour a week. That'll probably get the job done. Doesn't have to be anything crazy. Uh, as far as the right side of that curve goes, I personally am in wait and see mode. I really want to be able to uh, reject it out of hand and say, ah, this is definitely a spurious association. Um, but I also, it, it would be intellectually dishonest for me to do that because I, I don't think the evidence exists for me to say that is a for sure type thing. Like it's, it's an association that exists and we simply don't know. Uh, like I, I think people dismiss associations out of hand too much. Like the, the saying correlation is not causation, I think has poisoned the mind of so many people where it, it it's almost interpreted to mean correlation is never causation. And it's more just like, Hey, correlation may or may not be, 
uh, indicative of an underlying causal relationship. And at this point, we see the association. We don't know if it is causal or not, or if it is a, a mere association, maybe a spurious association, who's to say? So I, I'm kind of in wait-and-see mode there. Like I said, I, I do think that, especially for, for younger listeners, like people below 60, you probably don't need to worry about it because, again, the cohorts in this meta-analysis, mostly older adults, um, and so I... I strongly don't suspect that doing three, four hours of lifting per week is dangerous for younger adults. For older adults, I would also like to say that it's totally fine, but I, I legitimately don't know. Um, so I, I do think that, like, I, I think the way that I would thread this <laughs> is to say, if you're if you're asking me, hey, how much lifting should I do if my primary goal is health? I'd say, eh, probably about an hour a week. Um if you for an older adult or for anybody ah, for anyone okay. like I, I think that's i think that's probably fine yeah um if someone came to me and said like you know hey i've been doing three four hours of lifting per week for the last 50 years uh you know is is that dangerous or can i stick with it um i i think at that point you i mean I, at that point i think that's a conversation to have with your doctor. Like I don't, I don't feel comfortable enough definitely saying that the increased association with risk from this meta-analysis uh, is definitely something you need to be concerned about. And I'm also not comfortable saying it's definitely something to not be concerned about. So at, at higher amounts of resistance training, that's a conversation for you and your doctor, but uh, relatively low amounts, 30 to 60 minutes per week, seems to be associated with a bunch of good stuff. So if if you're primary lifting primarily lifting for health, uh that is probably what I would recommend. Unfortunately, I'm going to blow a hole in that hypothetical scenario that you just laid out because I do happen to have uh, a friend who mm-hmm. is in their 70s who has been lifting regularly for like 50 years uh and good luck telling him to scale it down cuz that ain't gonna happen. I'm not telling him to scale it down. I'm telling him to ask his doctor if his doctor thinks he should scale it down. Good luck to his. Yeah, actually, I've I've talked to him, and uh, his doctor was unsuccessful in those types of uh, conversations. But uh, no, I, I think what's really challenging um, with with this particular conversation is, you know, you want to draw some form of conclusion that yeah. is, uh, you know, uh, actionable and actually. Uh, chooses some you know number that that people can use um but there are potential issues uh on both sides of where you draw that line right so if you take the ultra ultra conservative approach that uh almost seems like uh discouraging older adults from lifting the way they enjoy you know you might be putting people to some extent in harm's way because they're not accessing some of the various benefits of resistance training, theoretically. Um, but then if you say, oh, no, go for it, there's clearly nothing here to worry about, then again, you know, th- there is potential for harm on both sides, whether you err on the excessively conservative side or the uh, excessively uh, less conservative side you know whichever way you you go with that there is some theoretical potential for harm Mm -hmm. or at least theoretical potential for limiting benefit you know so 
that was a, it was really challenging like to be candid when we were uh doing the the review process internally uh for your mass article that internal peer review that we do with all the authors that was the thing that kept going through my head was like how do you try to arrive at a conclusion here that's con- you know consistent with the evidence but also very cautious about catastrophizing the idea of resistance training for older individuals so mm-hmm. Uh, I think you did a great job with it, though. It's it, it's really tough to try to thread that needle. And um, I, I agree, like it, it would not be, um, you know, like you, I think the way you put it was intellectually dishonest to just discard it because it is inconvenient. It, um, it definitely doesn't fit my priors. It doesn't yeah. fit my biases. I, I don't I don't want that association to exist, but it does. And so it's just a question of like, how how do we handle it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it would be, you know, intellectually dishonest and incompatible with the or, evidence. Or at least so, intellectually lazy. Yeah. Yeah. But but, you know, it is there and it's something that that ought to be dealt with when you're discussing this topic. Um, but yeah, I, I'm also uh, when you look at the huge array of health benefits that are observed uh, in a more causative manner in the longitudinal interventions in older adults, it just highlights that challenge of like, well, how do we make sure we're maximizing the benefits we see in those longitudinal trials while also being mindful of this, uh, you know, this correlation that seems to be apparent, you know, it's, yeah. it's challenging stuff. Yeah. And, and I, I will say, uh, <laughs> one of the things that, um, I don't know, like bums me out a little bit. So I, I'm like congenitally anti-authority and I want to believe that uh, uh, like expert organizations are all just like dumb and full of shit. And I used to think that about like the ACSM's guidelines for this stuff. But like the more I look into it, the more I think like, ah, yeah, they were probably right. Uh, you know, a couple resistance training sessions per week, hitting all major muscle groups, uh, three to five days of, some amount of moderate to to vigorous uh, aerobic activity. Like as more and more research comes out, like all of that stuff does seem to be associated with pretty good outcomes. So unfortunately I got to give it to them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. We've got uh, plenty of listener questions that we want to answer here. So I'm going to start and just kind of go rapid fire through a few of them and then I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, go for um, it. How many were you planning to answer? I don't know. I think it depends on the time. Um, yeah. Maybe you do two, I do two, and then we can do the some some of the ones that we're both going to address. Cool. Yeah. And I, I might do more than two, but just because I'm going like really, really quick through them here, which okay. I say every episode and never do. But this is the and one. And then I time call you different. out for it, and then when it's my swing, I take twice as long as you do. Exactly. <laughs> At least we have a system. We do, yeah. Uh, it's, it's consistent. So I've got a question from Caspars, and the question is: uh, When talking about pre-sleep protein, which we've mentioned on the show several times before. Uh, the question is, are we talking about 20 or 30 minutes before bed with a protein ingestion, or are we talking about two or three hours before bed? Um, and what they're getting at is they're, they're based on the question. They're a little concerned about this idea of pre-bed food intake interfering with sleep quality, um, you know, because our stomach can get upset. Body temperature can be elevated due to digestion, which can be 
uh, unfavorable for sleep. You know, uh, you, you want to kind of get your core temperature down a little bit for, for sleep. Um, so is it really worth sacrificing sleep quality in order to promote muscle protein synthesis? So as I've mentioned on previous episodes, I think we've talked about it on the show. I'm not convinced that the pre-bed feeding opportunity is a unique opportunity. I think as long as you're getting ideally somewhere between three to six servings of protein throughout the day, I don't think it's critical to have one of those be 20 minutes before bed or two hours before bed. I, I just simply don't think it matters based on the evidence available. Um, now, the, the question about that trade-off of, let, let's say it's late at night and you're like, ah, I've only gotten a couple protein feedings in, should I go for it or should I be worried about interfering with sleep? Um, you know, the question was, what do the studies actually do? If you're looking at the studies that look at nighttime proteins specifically impacting body composition, those do provide protein uh, relatively close to bedtime. So the, the most common approach that you'll see in that small collection of studies is going to be a protein shake. So it'll be a liquid form of protein given somewhere between 30 to 90 minutes before bed, somewhere in that time frame. Um, the problem is with those studies, because they're so focused on body composition, they really don't say much about how it impacted sleep quality. It's kind of up in the air. There are a couple studies I've reviewed over the, the past couple years in mass that have looked at pre-bed protein, um, you know, different types of protein with different amounts of tryptophan and how those might influence sleep. Um, because tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin and melatonin. Uh, and so having elevated tryptophan in the brain at night could theoretically promote, you know, a uh, quicker onset of sleep in addition to, to better sleep quality. So for those studies where they actually looked at sleep quality, they, uh, they did have it kind of further away from bedtime. We're talking about like two or three hours before bed. So while those studies give us an opportunity to look at how this protein is impacting sleep quality, unfortunately, it's pretty far removed from sleep time, like I said, a couple hours at minimum. And so it doesn't really get to the root of this question, which is like, should I chug a protein shake right before bed or is that going to mess up my sleep? So um, the research available, unfortunately, it kind of takes one of two approaches so far, which is either put it close to bed and don't measure sleep quality or put it further from bed and do measure sleep quality. And I don't think that's intentional. I think that's just the way it goes when you're looking at a body of literature that is very small and they, they haven't really had an opportunity to test through all different permutations of timing and, and outcome measurements. So I, for now, would recommend just using a little bit of trial and error. I think a lot of times... Uh, sleep disruption related to pre-bed meal intake can be really complicated. So you want to go to bed. Uh, you certainly don't want to be too hungry because that can interfere with sleep for sure. Just ask any bodybuilder. Um, that, that becomes one of the hardest things in prep, in my opinion, is trying to sleep when hungry. Um, but you also don't want to be too full. That can be uncomfortable. And, and like the, uh, the question suggests, you know, you, you can have that discomfort of digestion, elevated body temperature, things like that. So you want to be not too hungry, not too full. Uh, but you also have to consider what does this meal look like? So some of these studies, they'll, they'll just give a liquid protein shake, you know, very, very easy to digest. Um, and that's quite different from 
uh, a very unprocessed meal with a bunch of fat in it, a bunch of fiber intake. Uh, so the, the things that often disrupt sleep uh, when consumed before bed, usually a fatty meal, uh, especially if it tends to be pretty spicy, that is not a good combination for a pre-bed meal that would support really good sleep. Um, but I think a lot of this is very susceptible to variation between individuals. I think you probably want to do some trial and error. See if a particular pre-bed meal disrupts your sleep. If it does, you might uh, go for something that's more digestible. You know, you might change up your food sources uh, or you might change the timing. And like I've said previously, if you decide to just move that pre-bed meal to way earlier and kind of... Uh, miss out on that feeding opportunity immediately before sleep, I really don't think you're you're sacrificing much in the process. Uh, another question that I'm just going to very briefly mention here is from Dan Feldman. Uh, you should check him out on Instagram, by the way. I forget his handle. Um, it has powerlifter. Is it powerlifter dietitian? Maybe I think it's powerlifting dietitian. I yeah. will, I will verify that as you're talking. So Dan Feldman, great guy. Check him out on Instagram. Um, he asked if, if I've come across any research on cannabis and specifically THC rather than CBD, uh, and how they impact strength or hypertrophy. And first of all, Dan, shame on you. Uh, you shouldn't be asking about this stuff on the show. Uh, but I would encourage listeners to check out episode 13 of the podcast, where I did a, a kind of a detailed answer to a similar question. And I talked about THC and CBD. And unfortunately, I haven't really seen a lot of new stuff since then in terms of peer-reviewed literature looking at the effects of THC. There was one newer study since then on CBD. Uh, I'm still a little bit unconvinced about CBD and how it might relate to uh, recovery specifically. That's that's where a lot of the research is, is focused right now. Uh, there's some mixed evidence, but just a general lack of evidence overall. Uh, when it comes to THC, uh, like I said, I mentioned some, some of the original research in episode 13, but just to recap, it seems to be fairly benign in terms of performance outcomes, recovery, there are a lot of anecdotes suggesting that athletes do use cannabis uh, in a percentage of frequency of use that I found a little bit surprising, or the prevalence, I should say. Uh, one of the studies, I'm going to link a couple reviews in the show notes for people who are interested in this topic. Um, but one study reported that uh, about 23% of athletes that were surveyed reported using cannabis within the past year. Um, which I, I thought was pretty high, um, but but they mentioned that it was actually uh, lower than the general population among people of similar age, which apparently is about 32% for people between 18 and 25 years old. Um, so just really shocking, horrifying numbers to see the prevalence that high. But but um, you know when we look at the anecdotes, you know a lot of athletes do use it. Usually they they'll say that they use it for reasons just totally unrelated to sport or they might say yeah it seems to help with just like resting which kind of indirectly helps with recovery uh, you see some people mention that it helps them sleep better um, I've heard people arguing uh, on behalf of I, I there was a conversation about removing it from the National Football League uh, drug testing list and the argument that I saw that was anecdotal was like hey you've got a lot of NFL players who are using some pretty 
pretty uh, harsh drugs to, to deal with pain related to the sport. And their argument was like, you should let them use cannabis and then they can use that to manage pain instead of some of these much harsher drugs. Um, again, completely anecdotal. Um, I mean, football is already such a violent sport. And based on the documentary Reefer Madness, I don't think that putting more cannabis into the mix would, would improve that. It's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anecdotally, like athletes certainly do seem to use it. I doubt that it would be uh, particularly uh, ergolytic in terms of strength, hypertrophy, recovery. Um, you know, the, the one obvious thing is like inhaling combustion products generally isn't good for your lungs, uh, especially if you rely on those lungs for the sport that you do. So that's something to keep in mind. But, you know, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of research here. I'll link a couple reviews in the show notes where people can dig in and see exactly what's been done in the research. But the short answer is, frankly, not that much. Um, also, just verifying, Dan's uh, Instagram handle is powerlifter dietitian. Awesome. Check Dan out. Uh, but once again, shame on you, Dan. Uh, quick question here from Maslin. Uh Maslin recently heard that creatine should be taken immediately post-workout for it to be effective. They were wondering what my perspective is on that. There's uh, one or two small studies suggesting that it might be slightly more advantageous to consume creatine post-workout rather than consuming it pre-workout. Uh, the difference observed in, in those two studies was quite small. Uh, nothing that would warrant too much focus or effort or attention. When it comes to creatine, I usually tell people just if, if you plan on taking it, just work it into your day in a way that is uh, most convenient for you so that it will be, you know, the biggest issue with creatine is just forgetting to take it. A lot of people mention that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm technically on creatine, but I only remember like two or three days a week, which isn't necessarily a problem, but. Uh, I think consistency is the biggest thing with, with creatine rather than timing. So whatever's most convenient for you, the only thing that I would uh, add to that in terms of assessing the best time for you is keep an eye out about how your stomach is reacting to creatine. So some people do mention that they have some GI distress with creatine supplementation, especially at higher doses. If you go to strongerbyscience.com slash creatine, I think that's the, yeah, that's the URL, uh, we have a whole section on navigating what to do if creatine is causing some GI discomfort, but you would like to continue using it. There are some different strategies about, uh, you know, when you take it, how many doses you spread it across, whether you consume it with a meal, whether you're consuming it uh, with something that's caffeinated. There are a number of different things you can explore to try to navigate uh that issue and to try to attenuate some of that GI discomfort associated with creatine consumption. Uh, and then I'll do one more here. Uh, I've got a question from George's. How do you say George with an S on the end? I don't know. George's. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, the question is you're planning on three meals a day uh, in this hypothetical scenario but you're getting toward the end of the day and you realize you already hit your protein target in your first two meals. So it's the end of the day. You've got extra calories left. You've got another meal to eat, but you've already hit your protein target. What should you do? 
Um, and from my perspective, there's really three options here. So option A is stick to your calorie target, have a, a, a low protein meal, um, and you know, just say whatever. I already got my protein in, not worry about it. I'll just, you know, have a, a carb and fat heavy meal, and and that's that. Uh, another option would be I'm going to, you know, force more protein into meal three at the expense of hitting my carb and fat targets. Because that, that's what we're really trying to do here is kind of juggle around protein, carbs, and fats. Uh, so option A, like I said, is uh, just hit your carb and fat target and let your protein be low in order to facilitate that. Option B would be force more protein into meal number three so that it's providing a pretty substantial third protein dose for the day. Uh, and you'd be doing that at the expense of carb or fat intake. So you'd be going higher on your protein for the day, but lower on your carbs and fats. Uh, and then the final option, and you, you could add more if you wanted, but I'm just kind of simplifying here. Another option is to uh, force some more protein into that third meal and to just go over your calorie target. So keep still aim for your fat and carbohydrate target as they were uh, at the beginning of the day, but you would just go over your protein target and therefore go over your calorie target. And so which of those three is ideal for you really just depends on your current priority and the current goal that you're pursuing. So if you're cutting, I would recommend option A or B. When you're cutting... The most important thing there is going to be making sure that you're being pretty consistent with your overall calorie target. And so I would not want to force more protein more protein in there if it was going to push me above my calorie target. So um, that, that could involve just having a low-protein low third meal, or it could involve bumping more protein into meal three at the expense of carbs and fats. But ultimately, you don't want to be pushing over that calorie target. Um, if you are maintaining or you are recomping or you are bulking but you're really adamant about staying as lean as pos as possible during your bulk again i would say that a or b would be the the preferred approaches because they're going to keep you online with your calorie target or keep you in line with your calorie target um if you're bulking but you know it's something that you know, you really have to mind the details in order to continuously make progress. So like you're not enjoying some of those beginner gains when you first get into lifting, but you're historically a hard gainer or you're just like really near your genetic potential or you're just not a very high responder to resistance training. So for you to gain muscle, optimizing those variables is critical. If you're in that situation, I'd say B or C would be preferable, making sure that you're getting a third dose of protein because like I said, in this scenario, you're a person who has identified that you know gains are really hard to come by. And so you really need to make sure you're getting at least that third protein serving to make sure that you're supporting muscle gaining and just optimizing that process as much as you possibly can. And then, of course, if you're bulking and you're just simply not that worried about a little bit of fat gain, then C would, would I think, be the way to go. Uh, you know, go ahead and put a little extra protein into meal three. It'll push you over your calorie target for the day, but really not a big deal. And that, you know, whichever situation you're in, this is not something this, you know, theoretical scenario shouldn't be causing a lot of stress. Um, you know, if it happens rarely, then by definition, it's not a major problem. It's not going to put your weekly or monthly intakes way off course. Um, so if it's, if it's happening rarely, then by definition, it's not something that's really worth, uh, worrying about too much. 
If it's happening frequently, then that probably is a sign that you want to go back to the drawing board a little bit. So you want to figure out, uh, you know, why am I consistently running into this situation and what can I do to reinforce some better alignment between my dietary goals, my dietary targets, and my actual dietary habits. And so that a lot of times that's when, when you're finding that you're constantly running into these scenarios where you need a quick kind of like strategy or workaround or I'm, I'm in a dilemma here, what do I do? When you find yourself in those situations consistently, that's usually an indicator that there's some degree of uh, misalignment between your dietary targets and your dietary habits. And so if you continuously find yourself in these jams where it takes a lot of effort to try to find a way out of a of a problem that comes up that's usually an indication that you know whatever the short-term solution is is kind of beside the point we need to look at the bigger picture go back to the drawing board and figure out how are we going to restructure some dietary habits so that they're more suitable for the dietary targets that are in place or how are we going to adjust those dietary targets so that they're more compatible with the dietary habits that you currently use? Um, all right. So I think that does it for the questions I wanted to answer. I did a pretty good job staying, staying short with that. Yeah, that was that was solid. All right. Uh, you want to do one or two? Yeah, yeah, sure. Where, where are we at time-wise? Uh, we are at a, just over an hour. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's see. I... I solicited some more questions uh yesterday from the facebook group and subreddit there were still some older questions that i hadn't addressed yet so i'm going to start with those and people who re who recently submitted questions uh, i will probably get to those uh in like the next episode or, or two episodes from now but i, I think i'm going to stick with older questions yeah. for this one um so yeah uh theta cheesed from reddit asks uh, why does the strict overhead press scale so hard with body weight compared to other lifts, particularly the jerk? In open strongman, there have been competitors at the top level that are competitive using a strict press against uh, others' push presses, but this isn't really a thing in lower weight classes, so why is that? So, that's a good question. Uh, I had never really considered it before. And so, my first thought is, hey, you know, let's uh, there could just be some selection bias there, uh, for all competitive strongmen. We don't know what their PR press is versus their PR jerk. So let's try to find a population where, uh, they were training both of those lifts very hard and we roughly know what their, what their best numbers were. And so there is an ideal place that you can look for data there. And that is the old school weightlifting records. So, these days, weightlifting is just snatch and clean and jerk, but until 1973, uh, it also included the clean and press, and so to be a really good weightlifter, you needed to be able to be good at jerking the bar and pressing the bar. Uh, so we we have uh, old data uh, uh, roughly indicating the relationship between maximum jerk strength and maximum press strength in elite level athletes who are training both of those lifts really hard uh, for the purpose of competition. And when we look at that, there's not, it, it kind of, there's, there's some degree of interpretation that goes on. So you could look at this data and say, uh, you know what, there actually doesn't seem to be that much of a relationship between body weight and the gap between maximum jerk and maximum press. So for example, in the 52 kilo weight class, 
there was like a 12 kilo difference between the world record clean and jerk and the world record clean and press. And in the 110 kilo weight class, it was like a nine kilo difference. Uh, and, and pretty much every weight class is somewhere between like a 10 kilo difference and a 20 kilo difference. And it, it doesn't really seem to vary that much. Uh, but on the flip side, you could look at it and, and make the case that maybe the gap is shrinking over the body weight range that is relevant to strongman. <laughs> so, uh, for example, like the, the lightest, like really competitive strongman class is 90 kilos or like right around 200 pounds. There is an even lighter weight class. I think it's like 175, but it tends to not have that many entrants. So you have a, a weight class around 200 pounds. You have a 105 class or 231 pounds. And then you have a super heavy class. Like those are, I think, the three most competitive strongman classes. And over that weight range, just looking at, at the records that were set, uh, there was like a 12 and a half kilo difference between clean and jerk and clean and press at 90 kilos. Uh, in weightlifting, 110 kilo class 242. There was a nine kilo difference. So a little bit smaller. Don't know if we want to make uh, all that big of a deal about that, that slight uh, a difference, but you know, maybe it's indicative of something. And then in the super heavyweight class, there was but a one kilo difference between the best clean and jerk and the best clean and press uh, of that era. Uh, Vasily Alexeyev clean and jerked 237 and a half, and he clean and pressed 236 and a half. So, you know, you could look at that and be like, mm, you know, maybe, maybe the gap is shrinking for the super heavies. Alternately, you could just say, hey, Alexeyev was a freak level presser and, you know, maybe that's not indicative of all that much. And I don't know, for me personally, I I think that that is the case. Um, like, the, I could be totally wrong, but like Lasha has clean and jerked close to 600 pounds. I don't think he can clean and press 600 and I, I don't think he could press 600 strictly if he trained for it. I could be totally wrong, but I, I do sort of think that like, ah, you know, Alexeyev, maybe not that great of a clean and jerker, like relatively to, to modern athletes, but just a tremendous presser. So, you know, it, it is a bit of a Rorschach test, but I, I don't see in, in weightlifters like super strong evidence that the gap between press strength and jerk strength really varied all that much as, as weight classes increased. I think... I think there may be a little bit of that going on for reasons that I'm not particularly sure about. But I, I think the bigger factor in play is just that in the heavyweight class, the weights are so fucking heavy that it selects for athletes who are static strength monsters. Because if they weren't, they would just zero a ton of events. And so <laughs> I, think, I think it's just a sport that selects for people who are just going to be tremendously good pressers because they're tremendously gifted for static strength. And, you know, some of them may also get a little bit extra out of the out of a push press or out of a jerk, but a lot of them just don't need it because they have to be so statically strong to not just zero almost all of the events. And so I, I think that if if I was trying to chalk it up to just one reason, I, I think that's mostly it, like athlete selection. Whereas some of the lighter classes, uh, you know, athletes with tremendous static strength also do very well. But 
there there are some more lighter events where more explosive or faster or more endurant athletes have more of an advantage. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think it's mostly just a matter of athlete selection at the top level. Um, but I could be wrong about that. But just just taking a stab at answering that question, I think that is the most likely explanation. Uh, Lifter in the Rye asks, uh, we've had a lot of discussion around optimal protein intake. What happens if you massively undereat protein? Like, let's say I'm 100 kilograms and massively jacked, and I decide to start eating 10 grams of protein a day. Do I just implode or what? You probably won't implode, um, but bad things could happen. Uh, you will probably start losing muscle relatively quickly. Um, and you might run into some boutique issues related to deficiencies in specific amino acids. Um, but more likely than not, like the, a a very early indicator would just be that you would likely develop anemia. And so you'd be super fatigued all the time. And then you're really fatigued all the time. You go to the doctor and you say like, Hey, I feel like shit all the time. What's going on? They say, dude, you're super anemic. What are you eating? Oh, no protein. Okay, cool. Eat some protein. So that's probably what would happen if you just pushed on through. Uh, you have essential amino acids. They're called essential for a reason. If you're just eating 10 grams of protein per day, you're probably not eating adequate levels of at least one of those essential amino acids. And so just over time, there would be proteins that would break down, need replacing. You wouldn't be able to replace them. And so, you know, it, 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 would, it would vary person to person, like what, what link in the chain broke first, but eventually you'd die. Um, but you would become anemic before you died and, and get that indicator that, yeah, hey, something is going on that I probably need to do something about. So that is, uh, that is what would happen. Uh, Seth Markham from Facebook asks, uh, how much vol, how much does one's volume for a particular muscle affect positively or negatively hypertrophy for other muscles? I know that's a broad question, but I'm curious what the known give and take is as far as recovery and muscle protein synthesis and how one could potentially elicit more growth in a specific area by adjusting volume for other areas. So I, I think that's a great question, and it's an area where there's not a ton of research, but I, I think we can piece maybe a tentative answer together. So first off, there is the potential that the, that the answer to this question is different for upper versus lower body. So I can't remember the episode, but it was a long time ago, like at least a year, year and a half ago. Um, I talked about a study that was looking at some, I, I think I think that study was just looking at acute hormonal changes uh, with just upper body training versus a combination of upper and lower body training. And some of the results indicated that like, ah, you know, maybe doing some lower body training puts you in a slightly more anabolic environment overall. And digging into some of the other research that has looked at that question, there is... I would say definitely not conclusive evidence that doing lower body training can boost upper body hypertrophy, but there's at least some hint that potentially training upper and lower body together might potentially result in a little bit more upper body hypertrophy than only doing upper body training. Again, I I am not, we're far from me feeling very confident saying that that is for sure the case. But based on the research that exists, like th- there is, there there is a slight hint that that might be the case. 
Um, and it, it's hard to say what exactly the mechanism for that could be. Could just be a handful of small studies that that had some spurious results, but you know th- there is that hint. And then on the opposite side of things, there is there is a hint that maybe doing upper body training with lower body training could potentially maybe hinder lower body hypertrophy a little bit. Uh, and so th- this is even more tentative. So either last episode or two episodes ago, uh, Eric talked about the McNaughton study that looked at the muscle protein synthesis response to uh, 20 versus 40 grams of protein in people with low lean body mass versus high lean body mass, finding that it didn't seem in that study like the people with high lean body mass maybe needed more protein to maximize acute muscle protein synthesis response than the people with low lean body mass. Uh, but Eric cautioned against taking that like super at face value, like, yeah, you know, there's there's other lines of research. This is just one acute muscle protein synthesis study. Not going to rehash all of that. But in that same study, the uh, so that was kind of the third study in a string of three studies that all used similar designs. So you give uh, you, you put lifters through a workout and you give them either 20 or 40 grams of protein and you see whether there are differences in protein synthesis between 20 and 40 grams of protein. And uh, the first two studies only used a lower body training stimulus and the McNaughton study used a full body training stimulus but measured muscle protein synthesis of the quads. And when you look at those three studies together, the overall training stimulus for the lower body seemed to be roughly comparable. The difference being in the McNaughton study, people were also doing some upper body training. And if you just compare those three studies, the elevation in muscle protein synthesis in the quads in the McNaughton study was like 20-30% lower than the elevations in muscle protein synthesis in the other two prior studies that had used a similar design. And so I don't necessarily think it's advisable to compare different studies with different cohorts completely apples to apples. But if one were to do that, you could make a very weak case that maybe doing some some upper body training along with lower body training might reduce muscle protein synthesis of the lower body muscles a little bit. So if you wanted to to take the maximally liberal kind of like biohackery, like a, a suggestion is fine, we don't need proof uh, approach to this, you can maybe make the case that uh, if you want to maximize upper body hypertrophy, you should be doing some lower body training. And if you want to lower, if you want to optimize lower body hypertrophy, maybe you should avoid doing too much upper body training. That th- that again is is the maximally liberal inter- interpretation. My personal take is that it probably doesn't matter all that much. Um, like that that's not necessarily something that I've seen play out in practice. And again, the the research supporting that interpretation is very weak and very tenuous. Um, but I do think that, I, I think that it's mostly just a matter of like overall dose and a question of whether the training you're doing for one muscle group detracts from your ability to train another muscle group really hard. So talking to, um, like talking to some bench specialists back in the day, one of the things that they consistently told me is like, ah, you know, like you got to do lower body training. You don't want to 
you don't want to look like a popsicle, like huge upper body walking around on chicken legs. But like, you know, we, we mostly just do some machine training for lower body, maybe some squats, mostly avoid deadlifts. I was like, oh, why do you avoid deadlifts? And they're like, dude, like if, if it fries your upper back, you just don't have as stable of a base to bench on. Uh, if your, if your erectors get fatigued and sore, you can't arch as well. Like if I train the deadlift too hard, I, I just can't put as much effort into my bench training as I want. And so like by cutting back on deadlift training, that, that improves my bench results. Like that, that's, that's something I've heard from probably a dozen bench specialists. Like a lot of bench specialists don't like deadlifts. And you know, that could also just be motivated reasoning. It's like, Hey, I'm a bench specialist. Cause I have really short arms. And as a result, I also suck at deadlifting. So I'm, I'm going to invent a reason why I shouldn't deadlift. But uh, yeah, that is something that a lot of bench specialists say. And, and I think there is probably something to that, that, you know, if you want to maximize how hard you can train a particular muscle, if there's some other exercise that detracts from your ability to put a, a full level of effort into exercises that train that particular muscle... It, it might detract from your results a little bit. Um, but but ultimately, I think I think most of that is stuff that you can probably train around. Um, and I personally, after laying out the maximally liberal case for why it may matter, I personally think that it likely doesn't matter. Um, like when you when you look at the most jacked people in the world, most of them don't have like just glaring holes in muscular development. Um, and you know, even if they have a particular muscle that may jump out to you, it's like, Ooh, that's underdeveloped. Like it's probably still like way bigger than the average person's. Like if you see a huge jacked bodybuilder with tiny calves, their tiny calves are probably still enormous. It's just the rest of them is, is so much bigger. Um, so yeah, like the, the, it, it doesn't seem like hugely jacked people are really missing out on much by not neglecting certain muscles. Um, so yeah, I, I personally don't think it makes all that much of a difference. Uh, let's see. Those were all of the old ones. Let me see if I have time for one other newer one. We're at 118. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. That, yeah. I'll, I'll leave all of, all of the newer ones. Let, let's do some collaborative questions. Well, we have time for one. Which one would you like to do? Let's do... Let's do debating people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a question that comes up from time to time. And the question is always just, why don't you debate blank, right? And and sometimes I'll, I'll get, like, tagged in something. And, hey, you two should go at it uh, in a battle of wits and see who comes out victorious and wins over the uh, the perspectives of the listening audience. And so... This whole approach of debating people, uh, you know, hey, let's get on a YouTube channel, let's get on a podcast, and we'll we'll hash it out. It's become really popular, like really common in fitness and in nutrition. Um, but in my opinion, it's a somewhat lousy way to handle a lot of the topics that are being debated. Um, you know. Uh, from my perspective, a, de a debate is really useful for discussions about uh, big picture ideas, big picture concepts, things that are, you know, theoretical debates related to certain ideologies, things like that. Um, 
most of the, you know, when it's really logic driven or really theory driven, um, and it's more about kind of a rationalist perspective of like, well, let's put together the logic here and walk through it. I think that lends itself more to the debate format, but a lot of times in nutrition and exercise, it's like, let's quibble over the details about what this specific study actually found and what that means for, you know, the question or, or the topic at hand. Uh, and I think a great example of, uh, of how to do debate in fitness and nutrition, in my opinion, or one that I at least felt good about was when we went back and forth with Menno Henselman's about the, the whole P ratio discussion. We've talked about it on the show. We've got the articles on the website. It, it took the form of we will present a case and then someone else will kind of, you know, say, well, actually, here's what I believe. And, you know, I think you missed this and that study. And here's a study you didn't consider. It, it's written. It, it takes the written form and it goes back and forth. And that allows the individuals who are involved in the discussion to sit through it, you know, sit down, think through it, go back to the research and critically read and interpret that research and see if, may yeah, maybe I did misinterpret something. Maybe I did miss something in the supplementary file that they've brought my attention to. But it's the type of thing where a lot of times when you hear these fitness and nutrition debates on like a YouTube channel or a podcast, it's all on the fly. And someone will say, this study found X. And the other person will say, I disagree. And usually there's not a lot of room there to, to dig into the details. And let's say, say, well, let's pause. I'm going to bring that paper up. Give me about 10 minutes to, to dig into it. And then we'll revisit this. That, that yeah. never happens because that's awful for the listener or the viewer. Uh, so in many cases, I, I think that the debate format, just in terms of an... Uh, a live in-person audio or video debate, I think it's just not very suitable for digging into the actual literature and coming away with the most uh, most accurate, most nuanced uh, conclusions from that literature. You really do have to dive back in. And in some cases, another reason I don't like to do these is because uh, a lot of times people go into it with a completely formed conclusion, right? Yeah. So like one of the things that that comes up is like you see these camps in the nutrition world, whether it's like carnivore or vegan or whatever the case may be. And it's like, there's nothing that's going to happen in the next 90 minutes that's going to move me from my position. Both of the speakers in the debate are, are completely attached to their position and the audience from each respective speaker is completely entrenched in that position. And there's like this imaginary, maybe real tiny portion of people in the middle who actually open that up and say, yeah, maybe I am open to being swayed one direction or the other. Yeah. And I tend to find, in my opinion, that usually you get swayed by the person who speaks most confidently and not by the person who makes the best actual argument in terms of the accuracy and construction of the argument so for all those reasons i'm just i i don't find it to be a very fruitful endeavor in many cases but greg what do you think no i i agree i think it's um so i i think one of the distinctions you made you made is very important so is this a debate about theory where we're using logical reasoning to talk through something or is it a debate about something scientific 
where we're relying on sources we're citing and interpretations of those sources to make a case. I think those are two very different types of debates. And if it's more of just kind of like the logical rationalist debate, you can do that in real time. I think most people or a lot of people still do that in bad faith, but that is at least something that could theoretically be productive to do in real time. Um, But I I very much agree that if it's a debate about something related to science and evidence, I think it's virtually impossible to do it in real time uh, in a debate format uh, in a way that is both in good faith and interesting. So uh, the reason I say it's impossible to do in good faith or or very challenging to do in good faith is... uh, if someone else is is citing evidence to support their point, you have you you have basically three uh, three options you can do, uh, and two of them are quick and one of them are slow. Option one is just to dismiss what they're saying, uh, which isn't uh, uh, debating in good faith. I don't think. Option two is to just accept what they're saying, which maybe a which is a weak debate tactic like you're you're just seeding ground uh perhaps unnecessarily because you might need to look at that source for yourself so you're probably not going to do that and then the third option is very slow which is looking at the source reading it carefully considering it which you just can't do um in in a live debate format and the other thing is is you can do that if and only if both people engaged in the debate intimately know every source that they are citing and the other person is citing inside and out to the point that they can quibble about the details in real time, which I have never seen that happen. So um, so that could occur in theory, and that could lead to a productive debate, and it would also be a hideously boring debate for all of the readers who aren't intimately aware of all of those sources inside and out um so yeah i i don't think it's ever like i i just don't think it's ever going to be particularly fruitful um and yeah that's yeah like like you were saying i so someone wanted me to debate someone and i was like this person was just making the rounds just debating everybody who would who would jump on a call and I went and listened to one of their debates and, and they did a, kind of exactly what you're referring to where like someone brought up a point and they were like, nah, that study's clearly fake because there's, and it like, you could look into other research if, mm-hmm. if it was in a written uh, kind of form yeah, and you could say, well, I question the veracity of that data based on this other evidence, which makes it look very, very questionable. But in real time, like you said, all it was just a gut instinct and a hunch, and it was like, ah, that's fake news. And like, m- anyway, let's move on. I reject your data. Do you have anything else? And it was completely not useful. Yeah. And the other thing that that happened um, was uh, the the person asserted a particular point, and the other person was like, yeah, I've I've never seen that in the research. I don't know which research you're talking about. And they're like, well, it exists. So I mean, that's on you. And they just misrepresented it to the point that even if you knew the study, you'd have no idea what they're referring to. Yeah, I mean, that that also um, leads to a difference between written debates and uh, like real-time talking debates, uh, which is that when you're just having a conversation with someone, 
it's far easier and oftentimes very advantageous to simply lie. (laughs) Because like, dude, if you're, so if it's like a written back and forth and there's a point you want to make and you say that there's a study that backs it up, uh, but you don't link it and you had a week to look for it and you just say like, you know what? There was a study that showed X, Y, and Z. Unfortunately, I can't find it. A reader can look at that and know, like, oh, they had a week to formulate this response. They're they're full of shit. Like, they're yeah. they're clearly lying about this. Whereas, like, that's a very reasonable thing to assert in person. Like, oh, I saw this study. I'm blanking on the title and author. And that could be entirely true and honest. Like, most people don't remember the title and author of every study they've ever read. Or you could simply be lying. And there's no way for, for the viewer to be able to tell the difference. Um, so yeah, like there there's there's a lot of slimy tactics that work in debates that simply don't work in written back and forths. So yeah. I, I think that it uh, engenders a level of discourse that's not great. And the other thing I'll say is as a potential participant, I've never seen an outcome of a debate where someone doesn't wind up getting harassed. Like, as far as I can tell, people who are very into debates, especially, like, Twitch debates, they just have, like, Discord servers of lackeys. And, like, if someone disagrees with them, it's like, oh, yeah, just go harass them on Twitch. Go harass them on Twitter. Uh, There's, like, a 75% chance that, like, if you debate someone... Uh, especially if you seemingly win the debate and make the other person look bad, there's like a 75% chance you're about to be mobbed by people accusing you of being a pedophile. I don't know I don't know how that occurs, but someone always winds up being accused of pedophilia. That's a that's a commonality of of virtually all like recent online debates uh, that I've that I've observed. It, so, it gets really toxic. Like yeah. that mob mentality kind of takes over and then it's these two factions and yeah, some someone is getting harassed in the process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the thing like that, that debate I mentioned, um, if you were just kind of observing, you'd say, wow, that person made really confident points that seem to be supported by evidence that they say exists. Um, but y- you wonder how many listeners took a second to find the vague research that was being alluded to and then say dude that's not even close to what you said it it was showing you know within the debate like if you actually dug into the resources uh you would find that this debate was built out of like a house of cards and just kind of glued together with like you know goo uh, glue and tape and gum and like it was just a terrible argument that was not representative of the underlying evidence but Again, uh, in the debate format, there was no way to actually go through and fact check uh, in a, a meaningful way. Well, and I mean, like, even 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 if there was a way, like, not in real time during the debate, but just viewers after the fact, you know, like, the, the person organizing the debate makes both parties submit all of their sources, link them all in the show notes. Just the way people interact with with information, uh, like like links in video versus audio content, is very different. Like if you're reading an article and they're linking out to something else that they claim supports a point that they're making, you just open another tab. You can skim it. You can go back to what you were reading before. Like that that's a very normal thing to do. Um, but you know, if, if someone in a video cites a source, maybe you're gonna pull it up and like, yeah, hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna read that after the video. But like. I don't I don't think virtually anyone pauses the video. They're like, oh, this person cited a source. Let's pause the video, read the source in its entirety, and then come back to the video to see what this person says about it. Theoretically, they could, 
But like that's that's just not how people tend to interact with video content. Whereas I think it's more likely that they'll interact with written content that way. Yeah, for sure. And then my final point is that due to the road to enlightenment that I traversed in record time, uh, <laughs> I'm just no longer interested in trying to insist that people agree with me. So like when people say, hey, you should debate this person who disagrees with you, I'm more inclined to say I'd be happy to defend any of the content I put out on this and to consider rebuttals. But that that's kind of where it starts and ends. Like, yeah. here's my perspective. Here's why I believe it. I'm, of course, happy to revise that. But the debate, not not really interested. Um, all right. So do you have anything to play us out? I do have something quick uh, if you don't have anything. I don't really have anything. All right. Well, um, I am... Unfortunately, I, I must report, I, I was hoping to do the second uh, installment of Eric's Seder Stories, which is a, a fan favorite segment that we've done exactly once on the show. <laughs> that that goes all the way back to season one, I think, uh, my, my first ever Seder, where this I like was... like the third episode of the podcast. <laughs> I think so, yeah. But I was at a Seder, and I, I mentioned I was a kinesiologist because I never know how to explain what we do for a living. And someone's like, oh, cool. So you work with like crystals and gems and, and harness their energies and stuff. And it, it was just a, a conversation that really went off the rails. Um, I am both relieved and displeased to share that I went to my second Seder this week um, and no outrageous conversations like that occurred. So it was a pleasant time, but not great for content. So That's a shame. The, the one thing that I took away from it, though, honestly... Um, was you know you hear about people who take the kind of uh approach to learning a, a language where they just immerse themselves in it right and they're like yeah i just like showed up in spain lived in a little town picked it up over time because everybody was speaking spanish i think i understand hebrew less than i did before the seder honestly i i don't know if there's something wrong with my brain where i just the, the linguistic part is just totally fused shut Maybe one of my severe concussions really rattled that part of my brain. But man, immersion is, yeah, I don't think that's a viable strategy for me because I, I genuinely think I lost Hebrew content in my brain because <laughs> there was all, all the reading going on and I, I was completely lost. But I, I would just kind of sit there and then when everybody turned their page, I'd be like, all right, turn your page. It'll make it seem like you know what's going on. Uh, and and I, I think it worked well, but Anyway, uh, last weekend, there were a bunch of holidays. Uh, if you happen to celebrate any of them, I hope that you enjoyed them. And I think that does it for this episode of the podcast. So uh, as always, thank you for joining us. And we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. 
Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So, before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.